and welcome to the first episode of 2021 of Hot Water by Coworkies, a podcast where we discuss the future of work and workspaces through various angles with professionals from all over the world. Before diving in, I have some great news to share. 2021 started on a high note as we launched our book around the world in 250 co-working spaces, a collection of 250 unique stories from co-working spaces from all over the world. To check out the full project, make your way on coworkiesbook.com. Back to today's episode, let's talk about memberships through the insights of Jan Miner, formerly director of co-working at Ennismore, the company behind the Hoxton Hotel, and currently working on his own new project. And today, I'm not going to be the only moderator. I'm actually delighted to have Nelly Hayat with us, whom you might remember from our second episode. Nelly is head of workplace transformation at Verge Sense, an AI-powered sensor as a service platform for commercial real estate. With Jan and Nelly, We've discussed how and why hotels have transformed their lobbies in co-working spaces, but most importantly, what a membership really means, how to structure it, advertise it, and sell it to potential members. We've wrapped up our conversation with some food for thoughts on remote working and its potential future developments. Are you ready? Let's dial in. Hello, hello, Nelly. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm happy to be back online with you. We are really happy to have you here today again. Um, let's welcome our guest. Meet Jan Miner, who developed the working from concept from Ennismore, the operator of the Hoxton Hotels. Hi, Jan. How are you and where are you currently? Hi, both. It's good to talk to you again. I am actually currently working from home today. Um, so it's the good old uh, working from home concept coming into play. <laughs> uh, in in England, in sunny England, not so much at the moment. Just working from um, from my home today. Really delighted to have you on the show. You have a very interesting background that has led you to work for incredible companies such as Neuer House or Ennismore, which is the operator of the Hoxton Hotels. Can you talk to us about your professional journey leading you to flexible workspaces? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I think, you know, my career started uh, working within membership-led sectors, predominantly that being health clubs, which um, led through to private social members clubs, which led into then sort of uh, FM, F&B operations, lifestyle operations. Putting all of those kind of things together, all these different sectors of hospitality, it gave me a, a holistic view of the whole industry. And I found it easy from there to adapt from one to another and could conceptualize ideas into practical theory. That, when Neuhaus then came through, um, this was like the perfect project for me because this was fusing everything that I had learned from membership-led operations, hospitality, F&B operations, programming, and this was all geared around work culture. It was a members club, but based for work, which is where I really, really feel that the industry is pushing. Um, and this eventually led through to doing project in India uh, where eventually then, then I ended up coming back to London to work with Ennismore and helping them bring together their co-working concept. I'm, uh, I must say that I'm in love with the Hoxton Hotel. Um, and I remember in 2017 when I was working for Stripe and we were designing um, the Stripe office in Paris, we asked our employees, could you give us some inspiration of places that you want us to either replicate or get inspired from, and they brought us to the Hoxton Hotel. Mm. And when I went there, I remember that there were tons of people working from there. Uh, and later on, I read about the working from um, the Hoxton, and this is how I got to meet you, and I felt very lucky about this encounter. So I'm wondering, do you know what is the thinking process behind Ennismore to launch their initiative of working from? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, with the initiative behind that, with working from, the initiative was very much, they believed back from 2006 that they were unofficially doing co-working anyway. Yeah. And that, that all kind of leads into then lobby culture, which was coming coming to the front really around about the same sort of similar times. So as you said, the, it was buzzing. Obviously, the Paris Hotel, all of them, you know, all the London ones, the ones we have or have in America, the, the biggest thing for them is activating their lobbies because this 
brings in the local community and it's fine just to go from one of the lobbies and just work there with your laptop and the buzz in the field it builds the community and it was just a natural step for them to move through into co-working and the opportunity came up for a few of their sites and and they took the plunge and talking about lobby activation and lobby culture both are really interesting topics what did it mean for the hoxton hotel and then working from in terms of interior design did you have to change a lot of things No, you know, with, with the interior design side of things, they already have an interiors team that work for, that are actually employed by Ennismore, the, the creators of Hoxton. So the interior side of things was kind of already coming together. The two buildings that we chose or we have for working from were new builds. So they were from scratch. So we had a base build when we could create the actual spaces ourselves. So they, they weren't in any way recreated or redesigned of space. It was empty space that we could actually develop into a, an actual product, you know, stand on its own two feet if it needed to. What is fascinating to me is that the Hoxton saw that they already had this community vibe. People were coming every day to sit there, work from there. They had already built a relationship with probably uh, the barista or the person just saying hi at the entrance. And with the impact of COVID on companies being and offices being closed and restaurants and hotels trying to like survive. I see more hotels or restaurants trying to offer working options for remote workers. What do you think is the challenge for them? Or do you think they have the same opportunity as the Hoxton or do they need to build something different? Well, I think this is a really interesting question and it probably deserves more time and consideration. I mean, don't you think this is a perfect example of finite or infinite games? Um, you know, that a business, when viewed through an infinite mindset, as Simon Sinek would say, does not have winners and losers, but rather players who simply drop in and out, or if they run out of will or the desire or the resources to continue playing, then they pull out of the game. And I see this as a very sort of similar thing. Um, would you turn a hotel room into an office long term? Probably not. You know, although revenue would be very similar over the term of a month. I think hotels may look at total keys that they have and review that number. So I think anything above a hotel that has 200 keys to its portfolio in that building, it could be a risk number. So maybe they'd consider it. I think restaurants, no, I don't see it for restaurants. I think they are, they're in it for a finite game for them. I don't think they've got long-term strategy behind that. If you look at what they have to offer as well, you have to, from a COVID point of view, consider air humidity. Uh, within the space. So do they have the air conditioning to be able to manage that? Could they keep the humidity levels between 40 and 60% where a virus can't really spread and survive? No. So I don't think that's a long-term play. And I think once things start to slightly come back to any level of normality, they'll go back to what they do. Um, so I don't think they're in the infinite game. I think it's very interesting because I see trends or pop-up of trends if for the residential we've seen people getting used to the idea that spaces can be a source of revenue so airbnb like to blaze the trail on that cody which is trying to open people's home for others to come work in during the day um, and it's interesting to see that businesses are trying to enter that space on the other end seeing hotels big hotels like accor who are trying to offer co-working spaces, is going the opposite way, where spaces are just a commodity. They're not building on top of um, a community, a sense of belonging, an attractiveness. They're just thinking, oh, we have extra spaces, so let's just offer them for remote workers. I think that remote workers are not just looking for spaces, they're looking for an experience. Um, this is what co-working spaces for the past decade have been selling on, and they did well. Like People were entering spaces where there was a vibe. COVID changed a lot of things for those co-working spaces. So do you think that, for instance, the working from is a threat to co-working spaces, or is it actually an additional selling point? Like they're just another player in this field of spaces and community being a package offered to remote workers? Well, well, you know, working from is um, a co-working space. Uh, that's the, the fundamental part of the business. You know, they, they have private studios, they have open studios, they have traditional desk hopping type of membership offering. 
as well as all the facilities that will go with that. So there's meeting rooms, there's phone booths, there's printing areas, there's the members' bar cafe areas that they have. They have the wellness suite, all wrapped around work. You know, so you can go you can go there and work professionally fully for the day. I think if you also look at it, you know, in the actual design and aesthetics, that everything's ergonomic chairs. The desks are bespokely designed for work. Every single workstation has wireless charging and nowhere else in London has that. So it's a truly professional co-working offering. And I think it's one of the best on the market. Added on to everything else, you know, if you look at the traditional serviced office offering that you'd have out there, we concentrate very, very hard on hospitality. So we build it through the membership, not through a t- traditional lease. And I think also if you build things through the traditional lease, you don't need to worry about service because you've tied someone into a long-term deal. We work on a way where we believe the membership is a rolling month by month. Why? Not purely just because of flexibility, but also because we have to prove ourselves to the member month in, month out for them to stay. So we have to make sure that not only have they got all the facilities that they need to truly work really well from the space, but on top of that, they've got the service that they need to do their best work. And I think it also makes so much sense for hotel brands to have co-working space inside because I remember, Jan, the first time we spoke together when you were talking about lobby culture and lobby activation, it resonated a lot in me because I was like, oh, but how many times have I been to hotel lobbies? And I told myself, this is so boring. Like there's nothing happening. It's a huge space, usually with just a reception desk and people nicely serving you, but there is nothing. And now having co-working spaces just makes so much sense because whenever you wait for someone or if you want to go there because it's next to your next meeting, because usually they're quite well located, um, you can just really sit down and, as you just said, have access to a professional space to work from. Absolutely. And this is why any small saw that this was a natural progression for them to move into this market because... They, they activate their lobby so well. They activate the local community so well. And, of course, they have all the Hawks friends. They have thousands of Hawks friends around the world that, that were just the perfect demographic and person to bring in to get to use in the space on a professional basis. And as this episode is called On Memberships, I would love to narrow it down a bit and start talking about mm. uh, the membership side of things. You have quite some experience in the topic. And what's interesting with me is that very often people see membership as just a figure or just a price. But is it really just that? Well, this is, uh, I guess this is very interesting. It is a figure, but only uh, if you view it, in a, you can't protect the value if you look at it just being a figure. If you treat it as an asset, then you won't really look at the longevity of what that membership is. It's a similar saying as, you know, take care of the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. So if the, the members, if you look at them as being pennies, if you look after that, then we'll get into a point where the longevity of that business will continue and flourish. So it's much, much more than just a figure. Of course it is. You know, these are, uh, it's the life and the soul. It's the secret source of your space. You have to look at the first three months of someone's membership is crucially important in any membership-led organization because the first three months are the months when they will decide whether or not this is actually working for them so your touch points over those first three months of membership the engagement that you need to do the building of the relationships the introducing them to other members the collaboration the um, creativeness of the space and what you do in the space all of these points form vision or a picture within the, the, the minds of the member as in is this space more than just somewhere to work from Can I actually grow my business from here? Can I build the connections from here? Is this actually going to serve me more than just a place to do more work? And you have to look at it that way. You have to look at the long-term gain. So you have to have all these touch points all of the time with the members and especially get them through the first three months so that they naturally just keep coming back and back all the time. It's so true. And I also see a lot of co-working spaces often struggling to define their memberships because there is always the question of like, am I too expensive? Am I too cheap? So now I'm wondering, do you have any do's and don'ts that you can share with us when creating memberships? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think when you're doing that, if you're trying to create the membership and you're just starting off the business, it's, it's day one, you're trying to develop the concept. First thing is, I would say, don't have too many membership options because you don't want to confuse the product that you're putting out there. Maybe look at having three or four membership options. I don't think you need to go further than that. I think you do need to have 
a hot desking option. We use the term hot, hot desking because it's everyone really understands that. That type of membership actually builds the, the community within the space because they will work hot desking. So they'll work from different floors around the building and they'll interact with the people that are working in the offices or those that have their own private desk. I would also look at, an, at uh, having an evening membership because that's a good way to add actual revenues onto the membership base as well. So I'd look at having just three or four options. And when it comes to the price point, figure out exactly where you sit within the local market. So see what your competition are actually doing, what price points they're coming in at. And I would be, if you're starting, I'd be under those price points and stick to the price point as well. One of my big don'ts is never discount, right? Never, never mm. reduce the fees to get the deal. Never do that. Because as soon as you start to discount a fee, you're then getting, getting to a point where other different members within the space are paying a different amount for the same product. You may as well just have a massive amount of different membership options available. So never actually do a discount. I think that's one thing where a lot of people go wrong. Believe in the product that you've got, set the price range correct, have three or four different tiers and stick to the price. Don't, don't discount. On that note, because you just talked about the first three months of setting up a membership and looking at how things go, what are the signs co-working spaces should be looking at to figure out whether the price they have is right for what they sell or what they want to create, or if it's actually too expensive or too cheap? Okay, so the first thing that we did here And we were very fortunate with uh, working from, because being part of the Hoxton, and as I mentioned earlier, we had Hox friends. So we did a number of forums with our Hox friends, with a number of them, to understand if the product that we were thinking of putting it out, out into the actual marketplace would actually work. No one knew what we were going to be doing at the time. So when they were coming to this forum, they did not know what they were coming to talk about. They had no idea at all. And we just put a product in front of them. They didn't know it was a co-working space, but we put in front of them a number of services that they would receive within this space. These were people that come and used our lobbies regularly. And from that, we could then determine price point. We could come together because they were telling us what they would be willing to pay for that product. That helped us inform um, the actual level of price points for those memberships, but it also brought us in another tier that we hadn't previously thought because a lot of people were saying, you know, I work during the day, I have my day job, but also I've got my side hustle. It's the thing that I do in the evening, you know, because eventually I'd like to work for myself and, and just, you know, have my own income and look after it my own way. If you had a membership that was just for the evening, I'd pay for that if it was a reasonable price. So that's what um, started us on the path of actually creating the side hustler membership that we have. And that was a Monday to Friday and all day weekend thing, Monday to Fridays from 5.30 p.m. onwards and all day at weekends for a reasonable fee. And that was an interesting thing that came out from the forums. So sometimes when you do, do these forums, you tend to find that other things come out that you weren't quite thinking of before. And it added an extra revenue stream to the membership base. And that was the, that was the fourth and final tier that we put together for that one. So I would say do forums, do research, speak to the local community, see what other people are charging in the area and put it together there and, and think it through a number of times. Make sure you go through your budgetary figures regularly to see if it's going to stack up. Figure out when you're going to get to your steady point or, 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 or steady state within the budget. Figure out if that is the right level of revenue you need for the occupancy level that you think you'll get to. So just make sure you've got all those elements put together correctly. It's such a good point and I actually see a lot of co-working spaces developing very special memberships. Like some of them, for instance, they have a membership people can share between each other. So they can be two attached to one membership and one can use it during the day and the other person at night. And when I asked them, why did you do that? They really said, because the community we had needed it. And I thought it was a really smart way because it showed that they were listening to their members and to their needs rather than sticking to the regular memberships. Absolutely. And it, everything's moving that way. I think everything is moving the way of memberships away from the traditional lease where people sign up for long terms. It's, um, it's a dynamic industry that we're getting into it into right now. And the competition is becoming more and more fierce. So you have to have that flexibility of offering there and you have to walk the walk. You know, you have to make sure that the service level that you're putting there for the members will keep them there especially if you're doing flexible memberships, because month by month, you've got to prove yourself all of the time. 
that's what I think is the future of the space. And I think many, many more people will come down with that kind of offering over the coming months and years. Nelly, I think you had a question regarding the Hawks Friends. Yeah, exactly. I, I found the approach very authentic, Jan, because you said they started with the community that was there already. And that's something that sometimes it's hard to grasp for a new space operator or new co-working space. They don't have the people there yet to ask questions to, to go back to survey. So I'm trying to understand, like, when you asked the question, did you feel that you needed to preserve the Hawks friends and really make them like a tribe and very and be very selective on who will be the next tribe member to join? Or how did people react to opening to anyone? Okay, I think one of the big important things for the Hoxney is we work on being inclusive, not exclusive. I think that's very important. So the people that come into the uh, Hoxton lobbies and use that space or the Hox friends, they could be a whole mix of many different types of people from different industries, different cultures. That's what makes a community truly um, inspiring. Uh, it's that mix of people that you have in there that are working on different industries entirely and the, the coming together of that. So I think we started with a base from the Hox Friends because it was an easy start for us, of course. The Hoxton has a fantastic following. So having the Hoxton behind working from, of course, it, it was it was much easier for us to actually get the initial base of people through the doors. On top of that, the team that we had behind the Hoxton as well, the brand team that, that put together a lot of the concept here, a lot of the story behind everything and work on the story of the Hoxton, it wasn't as if we had to start something from scratch. We already had the, the concept there. We already had the brand of the Hoxton and we just lived off that initially to start building the initial base of the membership. From there, of course, the brokers start to bring in people. People see the space. They fall in love with the look of the space. And then you start to bring other people that hadn't previously, you know, related themselves to the Hoxton brand. You touch on something very interesting and crucial is the team behind the working from. Something that I've talked about lately was how big companies train internally their retail salespeople, for instance, at Apple, they all go through the same training. So they offer the same experience within the retail Apple stores. At WeWork, for instance, we could feel also that the person at the lobby had the same kind of welcoming and warmth that in any other WeWork spaces. Was there a special training that made the team behind working from more specific to the brand or something that was different from other spaces? I would probably say hospitality. These were hospitality-led people. They, No one within the Working From team, apart from myself, had actually come from co-working, flex, membership club background. I was the only one. So everyone had to be trained on what co-working actually was in the whole of the company. That was a challenge in itself to start with. But because everyone came from a hospitality-led background, they were naturally warm, caring people to be you know to actually serve the members within the space some of the people came from the hoxton so um some people had already worked in different departments that we took on board within our operational team many of them though come from outside that we brought in from either other operators but a lot of it was was naturally hospitality led and that's what started everything off for us there at working from and i think that the biggest thing the training was huge we did an awful lot of training and the training is continuous it, it never stops One of the things that we'll always do when we're trying to engage with the members, for example, is make sure that the hosts know the members by name, each and every one of them. That's a challenge in itself. And so how do we do it? Well, we walk around the space with them and ask within any area of the building, how many people can you name here and what do they do? And it was a fun challenge. And, and working with the Hawks and working with Ennismore, everything is about fun. Everybody enjoys what they do and everybody feels as if they have part of the ownership. So everybody can put their thoughts forward to actually improve the space and improve what we're doing. So they feel ownership for it. You get buy-in that way. And if you have buy-in from your employees at that level, all the way through the ranks, we run a very flat hierarchy system. So there is no hierarchy. It's very flat. Everybody has an opinion. And I think when you're working that way, you bring the right people to you because they want to work for that brand. And that's one of the most successful things of Ennismore is the people that it employs across the ranks. They love what they do. I really like what you just said because it relates to the question where I was asking you, is membership just a figure? 
And with an answer like this one, people can understand, or at least listeners can understand that it's far from being the case. And it's actually a whole experience in itself to set up a membership. You get access to way more than just a desk. You get access to a team that knows you, understands your needs, really want to support you in any way they can, because they've been, not only have they been trained to help you, but also because they have this in them, liking to connect the dots and really being like people person. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the biggest things and the reason why I moved into this market was because I want everybody to have a fantastic day at work. Any small is that kind of company. They want everybody to really enjoy what they do within their work. And we try and then push or show that culture through to the companies that come and join us. So they start to relate to the way that we work and the way that we operate. And they want to feel a piece of that. You know, they want to get a piece of that secret sauce, whatever it is. And they join and relate to what we do as an operation and so we tend to bring naturally the right kind of companies to us to work from the space it's so important isn't it don't you think that when you go to work for the day that you should have it so that when you when you when it's sunday evening and you're thinking i've got to go to work on monday some people get depressed most of the people get depressed people get depressed right okay so for me the feeling should be that when you finish work on a friday that emotional feeling that you have is no different from Sunday evening. If you work a typical Monday to Friday, nine to five, that nobody does anymore. But that feeling should, you shouldn't have a, a spike or a drop or a dip anywhere within that. When people talk about work life balance, you've got to forget about that now. It's all about life balance. And you spend so much of your time at work. It should be enjoyable. You should enjoy what you do. And if you can do that, and if, if you can, Develop a space that becomes a destination experience where people really want to go there. They enjoy the camaraderie. They enjoy the creativeness of the space, the collaboration that they have in there. They enjoy the people that work around them. They enjoy the teams that are, that are servicing them all the time as well. You are saying to your employees that, you know what, we're creating a, we're creating a company culture here that is like no other. We're going to come and work from this space. You're going to enjoy all the benefits of it and you're going to enjoy what you, what you do and you'll be able to do your best work. So if, we can bring that culture through that we enjoy as a company to everybody else. That's job done. You know, you've achieved what you need to achieve just in that. That's part of the yeah. tangible benefits of membership, by the way. You've got your tangible benefits as well as your non-tangible, your tangibles, and we can talk about that. But that's everything that you can see. The non-tangibles, that's, that's the real thing. That's the real, that's the real key to this. This is the heart. It's the, it's the beating heart of the actual business. It's the stuff you cannot see. It's the things that you actually feel. It's super interesting that you're saying that because I notice more and more co-working brands and even offices or companies looking at office going as an experience just because of what you said that people need to have a spark and need to be happy to go to work. And I think up until very recently, workplaces, at least not necessarily co-working, but regular workplaces or traditional workplaces, they were not designed to spark any joy into people just because probably they didn't have a real purpose. And I see that the co-working world and the hospitality world is really influencing companies in that direction to how do we rethink our purpose? How do we really add value to people's life? And as you said, not just work-life balance, but their lives. And this is really important because it's also going to make a very big difference in hirings. People are going to look, they are going to start to look into this now. What does this company offers me to be happy? Like not just a desk. I'm not just an employee. I'm actually part of like a culture or a community. 100%. That's exactly correct. And I think that that's exactly the way that it will go. For me, it's about creating, especially now, now that everyone's talking about working from home, which has advantages, but it certainly has disadvantages. Uh, everyone's talking about mental health around that now. So it's really important that you de you design or you develop, create a destination experience, not a product, not a building, an experience. You have to want to travel. You have to want to commute to that building because it makes you feel good and it allows you to do your best work. So people need to start thinking about that, thinking about how they're going to deliver that experience and you have to dive deep. You have to, you have to dive so deep into the operation and you have to continuously question yourself. Have we got this perfect? How can we make it better on every single touch point? If you start to look and have that as a, as, as a way of being, you'll start to create these kind of spaces and we will see some fantastic operations coming from this. 
I join you on the enthusiasm because I also think that we're going to see a lot more innovation in this space because not only co-working spaces need to be attractive to be profitable, but now companies also need to attract spaces to call people back in because as we see in Silicon Valley, for instance, most companies have are giving the freedom to all of their employees to work from home or come to the office whenever they want. But there's still this idea that spaces influence and impact people. So how can we design spaces that will influence positively our human beings, our tribe members, and how do spaces need to be attractive to call them back in? And so now that we have more experts in the field, in the co-working spaces, in hotels, in restaurants, in offices who will be looking at redesigning those spaces and how those spaces impact, as you said, mental health, physical health, and emotional health. And I'm so happy that we are there looking at the future now and seeing so many bright minds working on this. Absolutely. And I think if, if everyone comes together and they don't look at other co-working spaces or other operators as competition, but as an industry together, how can we make this better for everybody? Everyone will win. And at the end of the day, the people that really need to win are the people that are using the space. It's a truly exciting industry to be in. And it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to come into this sector, because I saw going years back when I was with Neuer House that I could see that there was this huge gray area that nobody was really looking at. That, and I could just imagine that the best workspaces of the future were going to be those that treated it like a club. And you have to bring that level into it. And now they're there. You know, people have been looking at this for the, since 2012. They have been there, but now you are starting to see and, and see terms and people are hashtagging uh, such things as hub and club, I've heard, which is amusing in a way to me because they've been there a long while, but they're just starting to get traction now. And I think the future of work will be to treat it much like um, a club feel, a members club feel, and it will have those touches of hotel and design and the interiors that make you feel special when you're in the space, make you feel as if you've made it in life, make you feel as if, you know, yeah, I've, I've got to get into the office today because I just want to be there. You know, I just want to get there. I just want to get there and do the work and, and have that great, I don't know, flat white with oat milk. That's my personal choice. <laughs> um, you know, and sit there from a, from a fantastic uh, building with, with all these amenities in there and facilities in there that allows me to do my best work possible and allows me to think in a creative way. And it's the people as well that make you feel that way. You can go into a creative space and you can mix with the members that are in there and you can actually see it happening. I've seen it happening before, actually, in my house. When I first went to those guys, I was sitting in the New York location trying in my first few weeks, trying to understand what it was that they were actually doing. And one day I finally got it because what happened, it was about 8.30 in the morning and I, I was in there just watching the members. And I started to realize that they're all coming around about eight o'clock to nine o'clock at that, that kind of time. They'll go and grab their coffee and they just stand around chatting. But you could almost see the aura, the, the, the aura around all of these people and you could see the energy building. All of a sudden, these people would disperse. They would sit down and they would just be hitting their keyboards for three hours because they felt that creative energy hit them. They'd taken it from each other. They sat down, started doing their creative work, and they were done. Laptop was closed, and they're done for the day. They'd done a full day's work within a, a matter of hours. You know, that's the key. And, and it's those small moments. It's those small moments when you actually think, you know what? We had an idea. We put it to market. And you may see it happen or work for just 30 seconds, but that's good enough because you, you realize that was exactly what I was looking for. I've just now got to try and make that happen all the time. And a favorite saying of mine would be, it's like the best dinner party you've ever been to but every minute of every day. So if you can think about what the best dinner party you ever went to, I could ask you the question, what is the best dinner party you've ever been to? Can anyone tell me what made it the best dinner party? It's a good question. It's a good question. It's an interesting one because for me, I can tell you what it was would be to me if you want. Please. To, but it would be it would be the conversation. Of course. To me. So if you can have fantastic conversation going on, but you can get your staff to achieve that and get that with the members every minute of every day, You'll have those harm moments going off all the time. And those members that have joined the space will get that creative feel. They'd get their work done very fast and they're done. They, they can go for the day and that's it. And that's what you need to try and achieve. 
it's not easy, it's very, very hard, but it has to be, it has to be your ambition. Before we continue, let's hear from our partner for this episode, Cobot. Cobot is the leading provider of management software worldwide for co-working spaces, office hubs, and everyone adapting to the new reality of flexible work. Trusted for over a decade by operations of all sizes, Cobot makes it easy to manage the ins and outs of community building, from room booking to payment processing to integrations with your favorite software. See how Cobot can save you time and money by starting a free trial at cobot.me. What I'm hearing through our conversation now is that spaces are changing, evolving towards new experiences. Workspaces are also doing that. But what should happen to the memberships then? Because I see a lot of spaces not changing their memberships. But should it be something evolutive? Like how should spaces think about adapting their memberships through the years? Also, if I can add to my question, because with crisis like COVID-19, for instance, rents are probably going to fluctuate higher or lower, which also has an impact on, of course, the final membership price space should set up. What's your take on adapting memberships through the years? Well, I feel as if we came with, for working from, I think we put together a very good membership tiering system and package that is that will actually future-proof them for many years. But if I were to try and talk about this for someone else that maybe needs to now think about a different way of building that, I think the first thing to do would be to look at the flexibility of the offerings you actually have. How flexible are they? Um, are they built for that? Because we, we're getting to a situation now where people don't want to sign into long-term leases anymore, particularly for the CRE firms. It's a struggle for them because where they might sign someone on a 15-year lease, those days have definitely gone. One-year, two-year leases, even that in my mind is a, is a bit um, restrictive for the industries or, or the, the economy that we're in today. So I would look at any which way that you can find to make that a flexible month-by-month um, package. Look at the industry or look at the services that you've got on offer to your members to see what are your touch points like with your memberships? What are the relationships like with your members? One thing that I do notice is that the people that take the private studio memberships, they're less into the whole community feel. They're more into just getting to the office and doing their work. And the touch points that you have with them are not so great. So you might not know how they're feeling about the space. So that's an important point. You know, you need to make sure that you've got a good relationship with the membership base that you have to understand how they're feeling. Are they happy within the space? And if you get the feeling that they are, you can then look at trying to bring in more of a flexible option. If you've only got serviced offices and that's all you do, I would say to try and add in the membership tier to it. So if you're going to stick with a lease option, which is maybe you've got them for one or two years at a time, add in a flexible membership option to that, the desktop option, and look at maybe reconfiguring some of the space to see how you can make that work. And now with a hot desk in membership, these are people that ideally might come in to the building two, three times a week for four or five hours at a time. Some of them, of course, come in all day long and they'll stay there all day. That's fine. It happens. But look at who you're going to sell that option to as well. Now, if you were to, if you were to sell a hot desking membership option to an enterprise company, the, the benefit here is that we now know, don't we? We now know that a lot of people are maybe working one, two days a week at home. Some are still working all day at home. But I think when we get back to the actual normal way of working or close to it, we might find that there'll be one to two days a week, which will be a flexible working arrangement where you can work where you want to work from. So these people that have got a more of a rigid offering currently, I would say pull in an option for hot desking within some of the space, maybe convert some of that space so that you can put that offering in there and sell it to the enterprise firm so that they will give that to their employee as a perk. Because if, if you're not paying for it and your company is, you will go there one or two times a week and you'll stay there for a few hours at a time. You can then maximize that kind of offering. So I'd bring that onto it if you haven't got it already and look at those options. If I can jump on that, um, that's very much a question I was about to ask. Many co-working spaces are offering non-products to enterprise because companies are trying to give access to third places to their employees. Is the working firm trying to go after enterprise also or was there part of the talk? Um, well, it was, it was a part of um, the membership tier that we already have there. So working from have private studio memberships, which is a typical office, either six person, 10 person, 24 person size offices. 
you could be one person in that office, but you're still paid for the full six person, 10 person or 24 person desk. You then have um, a dedicated desk option with them, which is your own desk in an open space. No one else can sit there. The desk hop option, which is the hot desking option, is created with two approaches. One approach is to go after the uh, the freelancer, the person that's working on gig economy, however, whichever term you prefer to use, but someone that's self-employed and works on their own, on their own thing. They will take that membership, but also we sell that to the enterprise companies as well because we understand that that is that perfect option for them when they've got a team of 20 people that sometimes are going to be in the office, sometimes are going to be at home, and sometimes might be in that third space. That is who it was really geared for because by selling that membership option to the enterprise firm means that the people won't be in the space all of the time. So you can maximize the desks and you can turn those desks on average two or three times a day and you know maximize the revenue you'll, you'll make from that seat. So that was really geared for that one. And now we tend to find that people are taking that. Those desktop options are selling more than any other option particularly within the Southwark building at the moment, they're the ones which are really going. What we're also finding is that let's, let's talk about the 10-person office size. What happens with that is you may have a company of 30 people, but now they don't need a 30-person office anymore. What they actually need is that 10-person office space because the teams rotate around in their own bubbles. So 10 people coming one week, another 10 coming the second week, the final 10 coming on the third week. With that. You then sell them the 10-person office for 30 staff, but you also sell on top 20 of your desktop memberships because they still need access to the space. But they'll only be coming into the office to actually use the 10-person. So it's actually we've actually found another market you can sell that to with that kind of offering. A good segue to my next question when you talk about maximizing and optimizing, which is whether the working firm was using technology to either track patterns, track the success of their spaces, or to give information to their members. Something that is very specific about the members club is that people are in the know of the person who will come, maybe a certain program that will be happening that day, a certain exhibition. Was the working from using any technology um, to either gather data or push data to their members? Yeah, actually, um, obviously this is going to be some advertising for some people now, but... Um... The, the community uh, piece that we were using for the members was Workplace by Facebook. So we would use Workplace as the whole communication piece with the members. We would put all of the events on there. We would have such things as our food menus on there because we also had desk delivery service for every desk in the building. You could order via the uh, the Workplace app and you could get food delivered to your desk. We You would book your meeting rooms via uh, Workplace bots. So the bot would would book the meeting room for you and it would be a seamless um, operation through that. And of course, you'd also have the CRM systems in the background running um, the access control to make sure that the member journey is as smooth as it possibly can be. So the whole conversation we just had, the three of us, was all about memberships and also the overall workplace experience that any kind of space, really, an office, a hotel, a co-working space can give to their members. But one of the things I want to talk about now is that once the people are interested in your membership, they come for a tour. And to me, what I've seen in the past, also running a co-working space myself, is that the tour is actually make or break. So Jan, do you maybe have some advice on like the art of conducting tours to sell that membership that you're trying to sell to the person or onboard him or her into the experience that you're trying to sell to him or her? Absolutely. Okay, so um, that's a good question. I think um, so far, you know, we've been talking really about the product um, and uh, the product, it's a, it, that, that's the tangible benefit. I think I touched earlier on the tangible and non-tangible benefits. So I would advise not to tour selling the products, but to tour and sell the non-tangible benefit, which is the experience. So whenever you're touring the space, let the tangible, let the product sell itself initially. You don't need to talk about this is a meeting room, for example. Um, you need to talk about the technology behind how the meeting room bookings occur. 
if you were to enter the lift in the building and maybe you're using a membership card to access the floors or you're using your phone to do that, talk about the technology behind that so you can talk about low touch, no touch technology. These are the things that the members or the potential members cannot see. So always talk about the non-tangible benefits of um, of the space rather than the tangible. I would also say it's really important while you're doing a tour, very crucial one for me is a trial close. So um, I always would say to the teams, the sales teams, when we're training them is to try and hit five trial closes during a tour. So when I talk about a trial close, what exactly is that? That would be me saying to you, can you see yourself working from that desk? And I'll try and get them to nod or say yes. I'd say, can you see yourself inviting friends to the events or maybe a wellness class here? And try and get them to say yes as well. So during the tour, try and get them to see themselves working within the space. That makes it much easier on, on the actual close at the end of the day or the end of the tour. Another one I would say is always do a needs analysis with the person that's toying around. So sell them what they need, not what they think they need. A lot of times you'll see that you're trying to upsell them something that they don't actually need. Well, this will only make them realize or, or downgrade later on or not like you because you actually sold them something they didn't need. So do a needs analysis to find out really what they require within the space. Find out how often they're going to come into the space. Do they need real quiet space for themselves, dedicated space just for them? Do they have a team? What size team do they have? How many people are going to be coming into the space at any one time? Tailor that package perfectly for them. So sell them what they need, not what they think they need. The final thing I would say here is ask for the business, but gently. So many times I've seen I've seen great tours occur, and then at the end of a tour, it's just well, you know, thanks for coming down, and and we we'll see you around, and you let them go. You don't ask them for the for the actual business. So gently ask for the business. You know, try and get that close done as well as if you can. It will it will only help improve your close ratios. That that there are there's just a few quick things that I can give you. And I think what I can say to that is that, you know, when we're doing the tours within working from, for example, the close ratio there is, is on average 68%, which is high. And it's because of the way that we actually work on the art of the tour. There's many more things that you can work with that. But um, those four things, I think, are the, the, the key ones, the key drivers. And I think some of the things I've also noticed by doing tours myself when I was running a co-working space, it's also related to what do you ask people when you want them to send you an email uh, to request a tour? We were asking them a few questions like, which company do you work for? Which membership are you interested in? And with those elements, I was also doing a research about them a little bit before they were coming in. So I knew who I was going to meet because sometimes I was even checking their LinkedIn just to make sure I can put a face on a name. Because then it's easy for me to go to them and be, hey, Jan, how are you? Um, we have a tour together right now, right? And also, because I was seeing the business they were working for or their startup or their company, I could also point out certain things we were doing related to their industry, which they were really clicking with. And they were like, oh, that's interesting. That could add value to my business. So I would also advise listeners to do a bit of research if they can, or at least if the questionnaire they have on their website allows it before the person comes for the tour. 100%, absolutely right. The way that you would guide or work a tour for a CFO against the CEO, a COO, or even a chief people person are going to be different. You know, if you're if you're touring the, let's say, HR director for ease, um, I would rather go with, uh, you know, a, a chief people officer. They're going to be looking at the culture and is it a good culture fit for their team and, and all those kind of things. The CFO might be looking at the price point, obviously. So gearing that tour and giving the information that they need to help them come to an actual decision is going to be quite crucial. Also, an added thing to that is to take them to the most interested point for them first as well. Uh, that, that's always important to so just actually show them what they need first and then take them around the rest of the building as well. Nelly, do you have any other questions or I'm waiting for my member's card. I'm working so often from the Hoxton that I wish I had a card so I could also book a room to stay over the night or have some discount on the restaurant or get a coffee every time I come. But honestly, I'm just so excited to see that this Shen that is very authentic and offering such a high 
level of service is not entering the space for remote worker because there are going to be many more uh, remote workers in the future. And so maybe if I were to finish on the last question is, do you think that the working from is unlocking the potential for more people to work remotely or is it just a consequence of, of this freedom that is given to people? I think this is down to personal opinion, maybe our own agendas in a way. So I think if we look at the the facts, we went from what was I think about a 90% people working in an office to within a matter of days, 90% of people working remotely. I think what we'll see is that that will come back, that pendulum will swing somewhere in the middle to a 50-50 split or maybe a 60-40% split to work towards working in your um, head office or your co-working space. So I think that we'll see going forward, remote work will probably be one or two days a week. And I think the rest might be within an actual um, dedicated space, let's say. And I think we've probably been working towards that over the last five years anyway. You know, I think if you look at some countries where they have a four day working week, I think those kind of flexible and ways of working are changing. And I think the biggest thing is the trust. The reason companies didn't do this in the past was because they just didn't know if their team would actually work. I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think you can work from home forever. I think for sure there's too many, too many problems with trying to achieve that long term. And I think we're starting to see that now. I think we're starting to see productivity dropping, but I think we're going to have a blend. We're going to have a split somewhere, somewhere around the 50-50 mark, slightly leaning towards the actual office or your hub. Thank you so much, Jan, for all those insights. I think uh, I took a lot of notes and I believe the listeners will also probably re-listen to this episode and pause it on certain parts because there is really a lot of great insights we can all use when thinking about experience, memberships, target audiences we want to attract. So Really, thanks a lot. And also, of course, thank you, Nelly, for doing the moderation with me today. It was great to have you both on Hot Water. And um, yeah, I wish you a nice end of the day. I will add the links of your LinkedIn profiles and everything beneath the episode so people can connect with you if they have further questions for you guys. Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed the, the, the chat. I'm sure there's many more things we could talk about. Hopefully, everyone didn't get too bored. Yeah, it, was, it was good fun. Thank you for inviting me on. It was such a delight for me also. Thank you, Pauline. And thank you, Yann. Anytime. Take care. See you guys. Ciao. Bye. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment to allow others to discover our work. Lastly, if you wish to learn more about our book, Cobot, or connect with Nelly and Yan, make your way in the description of this episode to find all the relevant links. See you next month for yet another great conversation on the future of work and workspaces.